Hello, and welcome to episode 22 of Tech Swamp. We have our host and friendly membership team here today. Hey, Brad. Why, hello there. <laughs> hello, Caitlin. What's up? You know, just membership chilling. Just chilling. And of course, this is Alex. Today, we're chatting with our policy fellow, Eric Goldman, to talk all things California Consumer Protection Act. CCPA goes into effect January 1st, 2020. So we're getting you all the answers on what this means for you and your small business. But first, we're going to hit tech history and run through some DC headlines. October 29th, 1969. 50 years ago this month, the internet was born. Uh, The internet began its humble beginnings at a computer terminal at UCLA in Los Angeles. All it took was a single login from the UCLA terminal to the Stanford Research Institute, SRI, in the Bay Area, and ta-da! The operators at the computer terminal at UCLA kept a logbook of each step and everything that was happening as the network was being established. The entry at 10.30 p.m. was, quote, talked to SRI host to host, indicates exactly when the internet was born, essentially giving it a birth certificate. And that's all for Tech History. That sound means it's time for What's Brewing in D.C. Caitlin and Brad, what are some of the top tech headlines? Well, impeachment proceedings are already underway on Capitol Hill, and today, October 30th, the House Rules Committee is expected to vote on a resolution that will formalize the impeachment inquiry where it is expected to pass. And it's likely that the entire House will vote on this resolution tomorrow and that the inquiry will continue. So after this vote, there will probably be another week or two of closed-door depositions from varying witnesses, and then public hearings could begin as quickly as mid-November. We'll continue to keep you posted on impeachment proceedings in future episodes of TechSwamp. Last week, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg testified before the House Financial Services Committee to discuss Facebook's cryptocurrency project Libra. Questions quickly turned to Facebook's recent controversies, including the continued presence of hate groups on the platform, the company's struggles to stave off foreign election interference, its policies on disinformation, and how the company treats its content moderators. The six-hour hearing proved difficult for Zuckerberg, where he gave answers to questions about cryptocurrency like, I actually don't know if Libra is going to work. And many members of Congress were not satisfied with his answers. We still don't have a deeper understanding of how Libra will work, how it will further financial inclusion, or how it may expand access to financial services for Americans that need it most, said ranking member McHenry. We can likely expect more hearings on Libra and we'll keep you posted in future episodes of TechSwamp. The popular social media app TikTok has recently denied that it removed content or shared data with the Chinese government after Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Tom Cotton asked U.S. intelligence officials to assess whether TikTok, which is owned by a Chinese company, poses national security risks. And this comes after several months of reports that TikTok censors content that includes footage of recent protests in Hong Kong and content that promotes LGBTQIA++ issues. Before we sign off what's brewing, we're going to hit you with some 2020 election updates. The fifth round of debates will take place on November 20th and will have all female moderators. The DNC recently raised requirements to qualify for the November debates, so candidates will have to have 3% in four approved national or early state polls, or hit 5% in two early state polls. Or candidates will have to have 165,000 unique donors with at least 600 donors in at least 20 states. 
And as of right now, nine candidates have qualified for next month's debate. This includes Joe Biden, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Andrew Yang, and Tom Steyer. We'll be sure to keep you posted on the latest 2020 updates through the 2020 general election. And that's all for What's Brewing. And for our policy discussion this month, we're joined by one of our privacy fellows, Eric Goldman, to talk about the California Consumer Privacy Act, otherwise known as CCPA. Hey, Eric, thanks so much for joining us on Tech Swamp. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for being here. Although I'm a little little nervous about going into the swamp. <laughs> You're definitely not the only one. <laughs> okay, so uh, we're here to talk uh, about CCPA and get kind of a CCPA rundown. Um, but before we go into that, I'd like for our listeners to learn a little bit more about you and your background. Um, so can you just give us a quick rundown? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm an old school internet law guy. Uh, I uh, graduated grad school in 1994, and I immediately became an internet law lawyer, um, which uh, there weren't many of us at the time. It was at the beginning of the uh, dawn of the commercial internet. Um, and so uh, I've been working in the field ever since for about a quarter century. Uh, my uh, Because I come from the 1990s, I tend to uh, uh, still have some of the uh, wide-eyed optimism about the power of the internet, um, which many of the later generations of internet law experts don't have. They came up at a different time with a different set of uh, rules and perspectives. Um, so, uh, so I'm a little bit of a throwback to how we were thinking about the internet back in the 1990s. Um, and I taught uh, uh, an internet law course starting in 1996, so I'm, I've been doing it for uh, nearly a quarter century as well. Um, and as part of being an internet lawyer in the 1990s and teaching internet law then, um, we I structured the course and I approached my practices basically uh, internet law across all different disciplines. So contracts was good and copyrights was good and um, uh, trespass to chattels and privacy. They were all uh, subjects that clients had uh, uh, needs that uh, we need to support um, and topics I would cover in my internet law class. So I come at privacy as an internet law generalist. I've started um, out working with internet companies across all their needs and uh, privacy, of course, has been a key one for uh, over two decades. Yeah, absolutely. And so privacy has become increasingly popular. Um, when do you think that we saw kind of an uptick in the general public caring about privacy, data, data privacy, um, cybersecurity? Um, was it a specific breach or uh, what, what would you say? It's been a slow ramp up. Um, we've had concerns about privacy back into the 1990s. Things like the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act was a good example of how uh, Congress felt like it needed to take action to protect privacy online. Um, but uh, I would say that there's two key milestones that have really ramped up um, the interest in privacy further, um, maybe accelerated uh, the dedication to privacy. One was Facebook's Cambridge Analytica data leak. Uh, which, um, in the grand scheme of things, is probably not the biggest problem that most consumers have experienced, but it's certainly been one that has caught the public's imagination and also uh, has caught the regulators' attention. Um, mm -hmm. So ever since Cambridge Analytica, I think the tenor of the conversation has gotten uh, more 
um, uh, more adversarial, perhaps, on consumer privacy than we had seen before. The other is the GDPR, uh, which uh, rolled into effect uh, recently, and uh, the GDPR um, forced a lot of American company. I'm sorry, uh, forced a lot of American companies to. Um, uh, uh, to invest in their privacy compliance and uh, regulatory functions, um, whether they really wanted to or not. And so the cumulative effect of all those investments has really uh, increased the amount of attention that uh, the rank and file American company is now paying to pri uh, privacy, even though it was driven by European law. Right, absolutely. Um, okay, so kind of switching focus, but staying within privacy, um, we're going to switch from general privacy issues to uh, CCPA. And I know that there is a particular GIF that you use when you have speaking engagements around CCPA, and I would like for you to share that with our listeners. Yeah, I used a dumpster fire meme, uh, which many people I trust have seen. It's a blue dumpster with flames flickering out of it. Um, and uh, it, it really is designed to be a visual metaphor about uh, this particular law. And regardless of its uh, good intent, uh, how the execution has really created problems for lots of people and may not accomplish the goals that the drafters wanted. And so um, a law like that, that's such a, um, such a problem, um, really needs to be called out. And the dumpster fire meme has, I think, caught the attention of many privacy lawyers, even here in California, those who are going to make a lot of money from compliance with the mm -hmm. law, um, because they, they really are not comfortable with how the law is executed. Right. Uh, so someone on our legal team here actually helped me prep for a speaking engagement um, on CCPA. And so when we were doing our, our kind of deep dive into what I should be focusing on, uh, she shared with me that you use that gift. So I 100% stole that uh, from my chat at American University. Um, so thank you uh, for letting me borrow that, even though you didn't really know that I did. I'll have my lawyers <laughs> contact you. <laughs> Sounds great. I'm looking forward to that. Um, okay, so let's let's dive in. Generally, what is CCPA? So the CCPA is a one-size-fits-all consumer privacy law. Um, and the reason why that's significant is because historically, uh, American privacy law has been built on what's called the sectoral basis. Um, we have laws that are specific to healthcare or to financial privacy or to consumer reporting or to children, like the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Um, and we haven't really had, either at the federal state level, a across-the-board, in all circumstances, general privacy law. Uh, the GDPR from Europe is an example of a general privacy law, and the CCPA is as well. And it stands out as noteworthy amidst the thousands of privacy laws that regulators are enacting because of the fact that it's uh, really the first American general purpose, uh, one-size-fits-all privacy uh, law. Um, the other reason why it caused attention is because it does regulate uh, the world's fifth largest economy. Um, California is uh, well known for what uh, California sometimes likes to self-refer to as the California effect, which is that uh, just like the butterfly effect where uh, butterflies' wings might cause uh, hurricanes thousands of miles away, um, California's fifth largest economy can literally change markets because uh, so many companies have ties to California and therefore must comply with California laws. So when California passes a law that regulates um, its state, it often has ripple effects across the entire globe. Right. 
Um, so just a few bullet points. When would this law go into effect and who who is being targeted with this law? So the law will go into effect on January 1, 2020, uh, so just in a couple of months. However, uh, the California Attorney General's office has a, a exclusive enforcement authority for most of the law, and their enforcement authority doesn't start until July 1, 2020. Uh, so the law will be in effect on January 1, but there's a lot of provisions of law that uh, will not actually be enforceable until uh, July. Um, so just as a comparison, I know we can talk about this a little further a little later on, but uh, you mentioned GDPR and comparing GDPR to CCPA. Um, how long uh, did companies have to comply with GDPR uh, versus CCPA? Well, the GDPR was in development for a long time. Um, and then it basically was finalized uh, with a two-year implementation schedule. Um, so companies knew it was coming down the pipeline uh, uh, for quite some time. And then they had a final draft to work with in uh, two years in advance of the law. Um, the CCPA was passed by the California legislature in June of 2018 uh, with uh, effective date of January 1, 2020. So uh, from the date of passage to the implementation, uh, the law actually had about an 18-month gestation. However, uh, the law also has a one-year look back, which came into effect uh, starting uh, January 1, 2019. So for the one-year look back, there was a less than six-month um, uh, process. Uh, furthermore, California has amended the law several times um, over the course of its life, including a package of amendments that was just signed into law this month in October of 2019. Mm -hmm. um, so companies are scrambling to accommodate the amendments um, in just a couple of months. The California Attorney's General Office is also obligated to issue rules that effectuate the law, and uh, those rules uh, were just uh, issued in first draft this month as well. Um, those are subject to uh, rulemaking procedures, so uh, they're out for comment. Uh, people will be submitting comments, and then a final version of the rules will come out sometime in 2020. So after the law is already in effect, uh, the uh, rulemaking uh, procedure will be complete. One of the rules uh, requires that the uh, California AG's office create a logo that companies have to put onto their homepage. Uh, that was not part of the initial rulemaking. Mm -hmm. We don't have a schedule for that rule uh, making um, for the logo. And so that might not even be done by July 2020. So um, we're kind of like trying to uh, fix an airplane that's in the air at 35,000 feet. Um, the airplane keeps on flying um, and uh, and it's being recreated and, and um, um, uh, uh, managed um, uh, on an ongoing basis. So um, unlike the GDPR, which had basically a two-year hiatus between drafting and implementation, uh, we may have zero hiatus between drafting and implementation. Right, absolutely. You were not kidding when you said it was a dumpster fire. <laughs> um, so what I want to do now is kind of talk about what CCPA is designed to do. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about what CCPA hopes uh consumers in California will be able to do with uh, the implementation of this law? 
there are six main obligations in the CCPA, uh, five of which are designed to create new privacy rights for consumers, and the uh, sixth, which is designed to give consumers relief in the case of a particular type of violation. So the five privacy rights that are created by the law is um, called a right of access, or sometimes called a right to know. Um, and it allows consumers to get information about a company's practices. That includes some generalized disclosures about what the company is doing. It also includes the ability to see what information the company has about that consumer. Uh, the second right is the right to delete information. So consumers can actually say, I want this particular information removed from your database. The third is that uh, the uh, consumers are supposed to have the right to port their data. So they're supposed to be allowed to download what the company knows about them and take it somewhere else. The most likely place is they would take it to a competitor and say, hey, competitor, I haven't dealt with you before, but here's everything that I've done with this other vendor. Now you should be able to give me equal or better treatment than this other vendor now that you know everything that they knew about me. Um, the fourth right is a right to opt out of data sales. So the law contemplates that consumers can say, stop selling my data. Um, and there are some uh, twists when it involves minors. In some cases, minors are actually governed by an opt-in, that the only way to sell the minors' data would be to get their uh, permission or their parents' permission. Uh, the fifth right is uh, what uh, we call a non-discrimination right. Uh, it's, uh, it's articulated as a way of saying if a consumer exercises one of their rights, including the right to, say, delete their data, that they shouldn't be treated uh, uh, less beneficially than a consumer who hasn't exercised rights. That includes in terms of quality of service. It also includes uh, uh, in terms of price. So if a consumer doesn't, uh, uh, I'm sorry, if a consumer exercises its rights under law, they're not supposed to be financially penalized for that or treated uh, worse than um, another consumer. And finally, the law creates a private right of action in the case of certain data breaches. So if a, a company is the victim of a data breach and they haven't taken the right steps to try to, uh, uh, to avoid that, um, then uh, consumers can uh, bring a, a cause of action against them under the state law with statutory damages that are specified by the law. Right. Okay. So who does this law apply to? Who has to comply with uh, this regulation? So the law applies to um, uh, businesses uh, that meet one of the following three criteria. Um, sorry, they have to be under California's general uh, rubric of uh, uh, being in California, although they don't have to be incorporated in California, and it's not even clear that they have to have a physical location in California. But so companies that are, um, uh, that are under California's uh, jurisdictional reach um, will be obligated to comply with the law if they meet one of the following three thresholds. Either they have to have $25 million of annual revenue, or they have to derive 50% uh, or more of their revenue from what we'll call data brokerage, that they're in the business of buying and selling data, um, or three, that they uh, collect um, uh, personal information from 50,000 or more consumers or other uh, measures in a year.
Um, so I just want to say a few words about uh, the, those standards. So the idea was that this law is going to impose some pretty high compliance costs, um, but uh, it should uh, only be, uh, those costs should only be borne by companies that are big enough to be able to bear them. Um, so the law tries to distinguish between large, uh, larger or mid-sized companies and smaller companies and tries to exclude smaller companies. But the thresholds were miscalibrated in some really fundamental ways, including the fact that um, the $25 million of revenue threshold isn't limited to revenue that comes from California consumers. So if a business is making a total $25 million across uh, its entire enterprise and a single dollar of that comes from a California consumer, in theory, this law applies to them. Or the 50,000 uh, person threshold for collection includes something like 50,000 IP addresses in, in a year. Again, not limited only to California residents. If there's one California resident and 49,999 uh, IP addresses from uh, other um, uh, uh, residents, um, this law purports to apply to that uh, company as well. And 50,000 IP addresses in a year is trivial. My blog gets way more than that. And most small websites do as well. Um, so the thresholds were, were, were so low that they actually cover a lot of small businesses that no one really expected. The goal was to, to hit a company like Facebook, which mints money. They can handle anything this law throws at them. It ends up covering Joe's Pizzeria. It ends up covering a blog like mine, um, even though we were not the target at all. Right. Absolutely. Um, okay. So now what I want to do is kind of dive in to what the, the huge problems with CCPA are and what this means for our member companies, um, all small to medium sized uh, businesses. Um, so first, let's just start with the basics. CCPA was written in three weeks. Is that correct? Uh, well, it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, the CCPA is the uh, detritus of a ballot initiative that was proposed by a guy who's a real estate developer who had enough money to uh, buy the signatures necessary to get uh, a ballot initiative qualified for the California ballot. Um, that law took a while to draft. However, um, what he did uh, when the law was certified for the ballot, he went to the legislature and he said, I have a deal for you. Here's what can happen. Either we'll put this, this to the voters, and if the voters approve this ballot initiative, you will be permanently sidelined about ever passing laws on consumer privacy again. Or, legislature, here's the deal. Why don't you enact what I gave you, make a few tweaks, but really don't change much. Um, and if you do that um, before the deadline for me to withdraw the ballot initiative, then I'll actually withdraw the initiative. Mm -hmm. The deadline was seven days. So from dr the date on which the law was introduced into California uh, legislature to when it was signed by the governor was seven days. Um, and uh, the, uh, there was never a public hearing about the law. Um, there were a small number of lobbyists who were able to uh, be a part of the conversations. Um, but basically, it was uh, like having a gun to the head of the California legislature. You pass this or you're forevermore going to lose your power. Well, of course, they're going to pass that law. And they're going to pass it even if they think it's garbage. Right, absolutely. So what are some of the other major problems that you see with this regulation? 
Um, so I'm just going to like tick off a few, and we could literally spend the rest of our lives uh, enumerating uh, problems of the law. So um, we're only going to hit the highlights here. Uh, Great. <laughs> let's, let's just start with the law's complexity. The law's 10,000 words uh, that was drafted really quickly and has been subject to only a few cleanup amendments, but there's still literally typos in the law. Um, so it takes a lot of time to read this law and understand what it does, because it's 10,000 words that are applied across the entire California economy, across 40 million consumers, across millions of businesses, um, and across uh, uh, literally uh, uh, the entire GDP of California, the G gross state product of California. Um, and so these 10,000 words have to do a lot of work, and they don't make a lot of sense. And so it's just really hard to understand what the law even says. Now, add to that that the first draft of the AG's right, rulemaking is another 10,000 words. So now you've got 20,000 words of law to just get your arms around, to try and understand. Um, and it literally takes me hours to read, uh, took me hours to read the AG's rules. I still don't understand them. And so the investment time that it takes to even understand what this law says and how it might apply to some niche uh, segment of the California economy is overwhelming uh, to most folks. The law is super costly to us as California residents. So uh, the California AG's office commissioned an economic research firm to do a study of the economic consequences of the law and their rulemaking. And the economists came back and said that this law was going to cost California 2% of its gross state product. In other words, we now as consumers are paying 2% of all the wealth we have in California to comply with this law. Um, now, some people would say privacy is so important, it, we should spend whatever it takes. But a lot of people are gonna, should be asking the question, wait, we're spending tens of billions of dollars on this problem? Is that the best investment that we could be making with those tens of billions of dollars? And will we as consumers see commensurate value from the investments that companies are making. And I have a really tough time putting a story together about how consumers are going to get the return on that investment, that we're going to spend all this money, and then we as consumers aren't actually likely to see a lot of benefits from them on a day-to-day -day basis, which means that money was just wasted. It went to the lawyers, it went to the lawyers' kids' private schools, but it didn't actually benefit the people who are targeted by the law. Right. Um, I'm going to just mention a couple other things before I uh, take a break on this one. Um, so uh, the GDPR is a good uh, preview of what is going to happen from the CCPA. Because of the high compliance costs that the CCPA has, which were documented by the economics research firm, so this isn't just us guessing that it's going to be expensive, the economic research firm literally put together the costs that were going to be borne by small businesses in order to comply with this law. Um, and we saw what happened with the GDPR's compliance laws. What happened basically is that the small businesses got walloped by that law. It has uh, both damaged their profitability and it has led to industry consolidation. So the big guys are getting bigger because they can afford the compliance costs. The small guys are getting uh, 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 filtered out of the market because they can't cover the GDPR compliance costs. That's exactly what's going to happen here in the CCPA. The small businesses are going to get uh, uh, filtered out of the market and the big guys are going to get bigger. So one of the goals of this law was to stick it to Facebook and say, you know what, Facebook, after Cambridge Analytica, we don't trust anymore. We're going to fix your wagon. And Facebook is laughing and saying, thank you for cleaning out my competition. Um, that's a win for me. 
Uh, absolutely. And when other states adopt uh, one-size-fits-all comprehensive consumer privacy laws, like California did, um, then we're going to have almost certainly heterogeneity in the law. We have to have heterogeneity because the California Consumer Privacy Act is a dumpster fire. States can do better if they don't have to try and pass a law in a week. But when they adopt their laws and create this heterogeneity, what's going to happen is that now businesses are going to have extra compliance costs. They're going to have the cost of the CCPA, they're going to have the cost of the Iowa Consumer Privacy Act, and those are going to be different costs. So they're going to incur extra costs to provide the same functionality to consumers. So we end up getting in a worse off situation where we as consumers are paying for all this, but we're not going to see any new differential value from the heterogeneity of the laws. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, the last thing I'll mention on this, and I have other notes, so you'll tell me if you want me to keep yapping away. Um, <laughs> but uh, the last thing I'm going to mention is that the, uh, HE's office is going, is approaching its job as a litigation shop. The HE's office is in the business of enforcing California laws. Now, under the GDPR, uh, the, uh, GDPR has provisions that are, are just simply nonsensical. Um, but everyone is okay with that because those rules are enforced by data protection authorities or DPAs uh, in each country who view it as their mission to work with businesses to try to do the right thing. So there's a lot of good faith expectations on the part of businesses and the DPAs that enforce the GDPR that so long as everyone's trying to do the right thing, they'll figure it out. That even if the rule isn't, doesn't make sense, is literally articulated, there'll be, that'll be smoothed over. But if the California HG's office views itself as a litigation shop, it's not going to try and work with California businesses to smooth over the edges. They're going to enforce the law as it's written. And so they're going to come in guns a-blazing rather than with a collaborative um, uh, spirit to try and help businesses that are doing the right thing to figure out how they can actually uh, do what the, the law requires. So because of this mismatch between the HG's office mentality and what people expect is going to happen in this very technical law, there's going to be a lot of enforcement actions that uh, are going to scare people um, that would have been avoided under the GDPR because the DPAs would have tried to collaborate with uh, the businesses. Absolutely. I, uh, I really am, uh, I wouldn't say I'm looking forward to seeing how this plays out, but it'll definitely be interesting to see how this unfolds on January 1st, 2020, and then when it's enforced on July 1st. Um, okay, so that's going to be all for our policy chat. I know that we can probably talk for an additional, probably until it, the law is implemented on what's wrong with it. But um, before we sign off, do you have anything that you would like to plug? Maybe where people can find some more of your content and uh, and what you've done, uh, the writings and stuff on CCPA. Yeah, uh, thank you for the opportunity to do that. Uh, I do blog at blog.ericolman.org and uh, I am blogging a number of developments with the CCPA. So uh, those who want to keep up with the CCPA, I will be continually rolling out uh, new developments. Um, I also put together a one page, I'm sorry, a short uh, seven-page primer on the CCPA that tries to distill it down into English. Take those 10,000 words of statutes and convert them into something that might actually be understandable. And so anyone's interested in that, please email me, egoldman at gmail.com. Uh, happy to point the reference out to that as well. Um, awesome. And so uh, there's going to be a lot of new developments under this law. Lots of changes are coming. And so we'll be constantly keeping up to date with that. 
Absolutely. And uh, our listeners uh, can find all of this information in our show notes. Um, We'll make sure to put that uh, on the show notes that you can find on our website at actonline.org. Okay, Eric, thank you so much for joining us on TechSwamp. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. And now it's time for our random identifier. Brad, what do you have for us? Well, as an avid sports fan, I need to recognize a big moment in sports that happened this past weekend, and that is the sports equinox, where all four major American sports leagues were playing on the same exact day. That's baseball, football, basketball, and hockey. A rather special event. Yeah. Lots of sports. Lots of sports. All of them play. Go sports. So how does that work? Does some like play in the morning and some play in the evening? Or like they're all playing simultaneously? Yeah, I think There's it's just scattered around. I mean, uh, football has three windows. They play all day uh, on the weekend. And then hockey and basketball, you have some matinees, but most are night games. And then baseball, it's only the World Series. So right. eight, o- 8 o'clock pitch. Go Nats. Go Nats. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a fun fact. I like that. That was a fun one. I liked your random identifier. Well, thank Brad. you. <laughs> <laughs> Caitlin, how about you? What's what's up? Mine's also sports related, but I'm not like I enjoy sports, but I'm not. I don't follow sports super closely. It's not like I can name like all the players mm-hmm. on teams, but I, I enjoy watching sports. Mm-hmm. But what I love more than watching sports is any reason <laughs> to celebrate and be festive. Yes, which is what the World Series has allowed me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, really, any any excuse to to have some celebratory drinks is yeah. something that I'm into. I get that. So uh, the Nats play tonight in the yes. final game. Yeah, game seven of the World Series. That means Um, it's tied right now, right? Yeah, 3-3. So it's exciting, but also I hope that I am not disappointed because I want to continue the celebration. I want uh, the Nats to come back, and I Mm. want it to be crazy and a parade, and I want an excuse to to celebrate and and be kind of, you know, chaotic. I just think it'll be really... It'll be good for us. It's what we need. Win. I think yeah. so. I think so. DC needs a little pick-me-up. They do. Yeah. And we can look outside of our window right now and see that the building across the street has Go Nats spelled out in post-it notes mm-hmm. with a shark. Mini post-it notes, which oh, I feel mini? like is important. Yeah, I think so. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And, and so the Baby then, Shark. Yeah. Do, 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 baby do. Shark yep. is also there. Whose bat song is that? Um, Gerardo Parra. Cool. Fun. I don't remember him from... He doesn't play a lot. Yeah, okay. It's like an energizing thing. Okay. You throw him in, the fans get to hear Baby Shark and do the clapping. It's a big spectacle. Okay. <laughs> do the clapping. Do the clapping. <laughs> yeah. Um, Caitlin, I also liked yours. Thank you. Specifically because I want the Nats to win. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, well, I'm going to completely change topics. <laughs> um, because while sports are great... Um, I don't watch them except when I go to a live game or I'm hanging out with my dad. So, um, you know, um, I'm going to talk about something else that I watch, which are bad movies. Um, I love them. They uh, just have this special place in my heart uh, and are good for my soul. Um, And this is the best season that exists for bad movies because it is that time where you sort of get into the holiday season and all of the places release they're terrible, terrible holiday movies, and I love them. Do I watch the ones on Lifetime? I do. 
So do you have like a um, preferred, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? True. Like network. Oh. So like there's Lifetime Movie Network, there's Hallmark. Now Netflix has gotten into the mm-hmm. game. Does mm-hmm. Hulu do corny movies? They show ones that you can't watch on Lifetime. Okay. Hallmark <laughs> anymore. Okay. Um, so Why do I have a preferred... Sh- Wait, what? They, they just don't show them anymore. Oh, they, no, they like can't. No, they, they just can. don't. They just don't. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was like, like what happened? <laughs> no, they're just, like, old ones. Um, I Honestly, I do think that, like, the sort of, like, lifetime Hallmark... The Hallmark ones are, like, oh, usually pretty touching. Unbelievably ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the stories are also, like, a little... Like, they go they go the extra mile, I feel. Is that where Christmas Shoes debuted? I do know that Christmas Spirit was on Hallmark, which is my favorite of the bad movies because it's literally about a guy who haunts like an inn that this woman is trying to sell and then they fall in love. But he like Does comes- she have a dead husband? No. Oh, no. That's shocking. No, she's like Come a lawyer on. who works too hard in the big oh, city. Mm-hmm. And that makes yeah. sense. But the best nice part about princess. it Yeah. But sense. he like comes to life for like he melts twelve. Her icy heart. Yes. <laughs> Um, and she helps him come back line. to like, oh no, it's better you guys because like they throw in some like prohibition mystery. Oh! He's like, oh. it's like everybody in the town knows about him and his hauntings. <laughs> like it's so great. He's and handsome. I wouldn't, he is handsome. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what makes Christmas bad movies better than regular bad movies? There's or is it so just many the frequency? of them. Yeah. Okay. Oh no, what makes them better? Well, they're all or worse, the same, but better. Kind of. They yeah. they all are sort of the same story. You know, um, which I really love. It's usually, like, something bad happens, somebody has to fix it, or, like, somebody needs to be reminded of the Christmas spirit. Yeah, they're, oh, yeah. like, hardened in some... There's someone who's hardened in some mm-hmm. way who then gets eventually broken down. They're just particularly bad, and I really love it. And then when you actually, like, stumble upon a good one, it, like, makes the good ones, like, even better. You know, there's one coming out that's, like, a real one that has, um... Amelia Clark and oh yeah, Henry Golding, and that actually looks like a quite a good. It Christmas looks movie. cute, yeah. Um, so I feel like that one will be the one that, like, you know, it'll be like the love actually, mm-hmm. the genre, continue the trend. But can like... you talk about the the Christmas Prince <laughs> and then how yeah. it's progressed and what we're looking forward to this season? Well, so the first one we got was Christmas Prince, um, <laughs> which uh, is just a classic. I encourage everyone to watch it. Last year. We got Christmas Prince to a royal wedding where yes. they got married, but also you got some like economic troubles. You got to look into the country, tough times. Yeah. Um, and the villain was able to like redeem himself very easily, which you know you need in a Christmas movie. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and then now this year we look forward to <laughs> Christmas Prince three, uh, royal baby. <laughs> So I wow. prefer the alternate title of Christmas Baby. <laughs> <laughs> just fit on this table. <laughs> I just spit on the table, <laughs> and it's on my finger. Um, I all because no of a Christmas baby. <laughs> a Christmas baby. Yeah, that's, that's what we called it before, because I couldn't remember. But I'm, I'm pretty sure they're all, like, a Christmas prince, and then, like, the number, and then a colon, and then, like, the second part of the title. I would also like to say that there is, like, oh, I can't remember the exact title of it, but it's one that's, like, also, you've got, like, a switching. These are Netflix original movies also, but one is, like, a switching of, um... You know, it's like it's like model behavior. Oh yeah, Christmas swap. Or like, uh-huh. yeah, Christmas swap. Or I was gonna say like parent trap, but they trap a prince. Um. So, uh, yeah. Um. 
Well, anyway, they're great. making a sequel to that, which, like, they already swapped and then found out that they swapped, so now they're going to throw in another a triplet, in, a triplet played by Vanessa Hudgens. So, promises to be good, but I don't think that comes out until next year. And it's a Christmas movie? Well, it'll be next for Christmas. next Christmas. Okay. Yeah. They're going to put it out in June. Yeah. <laughs> I would literally... That would be good for me, personally. <laughs> I would enjoy Happy birthday, Alex. Here's a Christmas movie. <laughs> That's all for random identifier. <laughs> okay, guys, that's it for Tech Swamp. If you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. We'll have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. And we want to give a shout out to Brad Goodall, who composed the podcast Awesome Music. Thank you, Brad. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, we would love a rate and review. Five stars only please. (laughs) That's all for today, folks. Everyone say bye. Bye. Goodbye.